build a house for them. <laughs> um, so we're leaving at uh, 4.30 a.m. next Saturday, if any of y'all want to come and uh, send us off. I'm not going to ask you to, but you're invited, because I know, 4 o'clock, man, I wouldn't ask anybody to do that. Um, so 4 o'clock, we're going to be here, we're going to load up that trailer and that van out there, we're going to head to Richmond Airport, and we're going to fly to San Diego, and then Sunday we'll drive to uh, Ensenada, and, uh, and we'll build a house in a week. Um, for this family, and so, um, so yeah, so you're invited to come pray with us before we leave, and uh, and we would appreciate your presence and just your thoughts. If, if you don't make it out, then uh, just be praying for us. Um, so so we're traveling, and there's this fear called agoraphobia, and I hope none of you that are going with us have this fear of agoraphobia because um, agoraphobia, um, somebody who suffers from this. Uh, becomes anxious in environments that are unfamiliar or where they perceive they don't have much control. And so this happens in crowded places or when traveling or in wide open places when you're out in the middle of the woods and you don't feel like you can get help quickly if something goes wrong. So um, agoraphobia is often um, uh, coupled with panic attacks. People who have this have panic attacks and, and that's their fears that they'll have a panic attack in a crowd and be embarrassed. Uh, by the people, uh, by being in a group of people and uh, having a panic attack. The statistics are that 3.2 million adults in the U.S. Uh, between the ages of 18 and 14 uh, suffer from agoraphobia, and that uh, that's about 2.2 percent. But I think the statistics are a lot higher than that because I think all of us have this need for control. Like we want things to be under control, and if it's not, we have a fear of that. We we want to know that things are under control. So I think statistics are more around 100% that we all have this fear of losing control. Um, but I was, um, there's, there's a picture that, that describes what agoraphobia looks like. Um, so maybe some of you are familiar with that. Um, Edward Monk's scream. Now this guy um, suffered from agoraphobia. He, the artist who painted this actually suffered, and this is his depiction of, uh, of an attack that he actually had um, as he walked along this path. And here's the quote uh, from his journal uh, when he, around the time that he painted this. He says, I was walking along a path with two friends. The sun was setting. Suddenly the sky turned blood red. I paused, feeling exhausted, and I leaned on the fence. There was blood and tongues of fire above the blue-black city. My friends walked on, and I stood there trembling with anxiety, and I sensed an infinite scream passing through nature. An infinite scream passing through nature. That's terrifying. <laughs> um, sometimes um, we, we get to this point where we join in this scream. When things fall apart um, and we're broken down to the point of just uncontrollable sobbing, screaming, whatever it is. A friend um, referenced this quote after going through a devastating divorce. Um, this quote from Edward Long. He said that he screamed uncontrollably, that he was... Um, after this divorce that he was um, sobbing uncontrollably and his anger was directed in many many ways but ultimately at God and um, when uh, when his scream returned silent he thought um, that God wasn't there but then later talking about this he said um, he said what if sometimes when we scream when tragedy hits what if that infinite scream that Edward Monk is talking about is actually the scream of the only infinite being and that, that it's God's scream from the beginning of time, his rage at the injustice of this whole situation, his passion for those on both sides of every conflict, every fight, every painful situation, his, his love for us, 
and his scream returns silence because in those moments is when God is closest to us and his scream, our scream drowns out his scream and God is actually screaming with us. So today we're talking about this, uh, this idea of control and this fear of losing control, but I think maybe control is an illusion. Maybe we don't really have any control at all. And what God is inviting us to do is to leave control for faith. Uh, this need for control shows itself in the way we, uh, the way we live our lives. Um, we, we make our Bible say things so that we have these guarantees, and we, and we treat God um, in a way that it's an equation that if I do this, this, and this, God will do this, this, and this. And sometimes we don't always have those guarantees because, um, because we always have room for, for things to go wrong, and things do go wrong, um, but that doesn't mean God isn't there. He is always there with us through the journey, and that's the guarantee that we have, that God will journey with us. Will you pray with me? Dear God, I thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to share uh, your word. God, I just pray that um, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart will be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I just got back from Florida last week. I grew up in Florida. And so when we go back and visit family, uh, I see people... Um, that I recognize, but it's like a life away. You know, I haven't seen them in so long that these people, um, they have changed. I, I haven't, I've changed, I've stayed the same. Um, but for some reason, they've, they've all changed and it's hard to recognize them. And so um, we, we went to see my friend Damien uh, play a concert and uh, there was lots of people that I recognized, but I couldn't think of their names, you know how that is? And it's like, I could just, what's that, what's her name? And so um, this girl walked in, obviously familiar. Like I had gone to church with her and I knew who she was. Um, but I was like, ah, oh, is it, you know, I couldn't remember the right name. Is it Aaron or is it Jessica or is it this? And so um, I'm walking by her and, and like, I'm, I'm still don't know her name. She says, hey, Garrett, do you remember me? And I'm like, and don't, don't do this. Don't, don't say the wrong name. Just say, yeah, what's your name again? Just, I said, hey, are, oh yeah, are you Aaron? Which is not her name. But as soon as I said that, I remembered her name was Jessica. Um, and she's like, Aaron, you know, it's sort of like I could have saved myself some embarrassment if I just said, no, I don't remember your name. I remember you, but I don't remember your name. Well, um, John chapter 20 uh, is the resurrection narrative. Um, the, the events that immediately follow uh, Christ's resurrection when they find the empty tomb and when Jesus appears to his disciples. Now, John, as usual, um, includes the, the little subtle references hidden in his writing. There's the um, there's when Mary um, thought that Jesus was the gardener, which is, a, which is a reference to the beginning, right? The Garden of Eden, the creator. Um, the linens folded in the grave um, when Peter discovered uh, the tomb. The linens were folded nicely, and that's a sign um, back then, if you stayed at an inn, you would fold up your, your linens to, to say that you were coming back. Like, don't throw the sheets away, don't wash them or whatever, I'll be back. And so, so Jesus' linens folded, there was a a little subtle reference to um, Jesus' return. And, and so there's, there's all these little things. There's the, uh, there's the not-so-subtle reference of John's ability to, to run faster than Peter. If you notice that, the, the one Jesus loved got there first. You know, they both left at the same time. John's uh, sure to uh, let you know that I am faster than Peter. That's, he wants you to know that. I don't know why. Um, but in every account of the resurrection, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Um, you have this idea that the people closest to Jesus, when they first saw him post-resurrection, they did not recognize him. His friends, the ones that spent the most time with him, as soon as they saw him, 
That's not when they recognized him. They didn't recognize him um, just by sight. And so the story of resurrection is still hard to swallow because it doesn't happen every day in our daily experience. We don't see uh, resurrection happening. We don't see people rising from the dead. So I think it's comforting to know that um, the people closest to him didn't recognize that God either. They didn't recognize the God who resurrected from the dead because it's hard for us to grasp that also. But it's also a call for us to expect the unexpected. And to realize that if we're not expecting this kind of God that will arise in your life, then you might not recognize that God when he does. And so I think the reason for this lack of recognizing Jesus is in our text. The angels, uh, when Mary uh, is, is there at the tomb after Peter and John have just left, uh, the, she finds the angels in the tomb and they say, woman, why are you crying? What, what are you looking for? And then she turns around and sees Jesus, but not knowing who he is, she says, where have you taken him? Where, where have you put his body? And she says, what? Jesus says, what are you looking for? Who are you looking for? As if to say, what? This isn't what you expected to find? You weren't expecting this? Maybe, maybe what you're looking for is the wrong thing. Or maybe you've actually found what it is that you're looking for. Maybe you aren't in control of how God works, where he'll lead, how he'll reveal himself, what his plans are for you or for all of humanity. All you can do is open your eyes and see what God is doing and join him in that. So the question seems to be, what are you looking for? Mary, Mary, what are you looking for? So when Mary sees him, she doesn't recognize him. After, even after some, some conversation, she doesn't recognize him. Her expectation wasn't to see Jesus. Jesus was dead. She wasn't expecting to see Jesus. She wasn't expecting God to work in this way. Her expectation was that someone had stolen his body. But when does her expectation give way to recognition? It's the moment that he speaks her name, Mary. And the lights are turned on, and she exclaims, Rabbi, the tears of sorrow or tears of joy, and she embraces him. So the moment that she hears her name come off the lips of her rabbi is when she recognizes this is Jesus. Now, now we seem to want to control the way God works, right? The way he's allowed to reveal himself, the way that he sends provision. We, we want him to send provision this way. We want him to speak to us this way. We want guidance like this. We want an audible voice sometimes. We want to control the way he forgives, the way he loves, and we want guarantees of our future, of our health. We want clear-cut equations of God. If you do this, I'll do this. And if I do this, God, you'll do this. You know, if I work hard, then my business will succeed and the economy will never take a dip, right? If you take care of yourself, you won't get sick. And if um, and our, our ideas of how God should and can't work always limit the way God can and will work. Yet we still save up for tomorrow because we don't know. Maybe we don't believe that God's going to provide for tomorrow. I mean, he's provided for today, so let's save what we have. Let's hold on tight. Let's take control. But what we need to do is leave control for faith. Now, um, we as followers of Christ, uh, we step into this journey with him with a simple response to, to the words, follow me. Right? He says, follow me. And what do we do? We drop our lives. We pick up the one he has for us. It's not in our control, all right? It's a life of faith, not control. And it's the kind of life that we just follow. We just take the next step wherever he leads. And God calls us um, 
the, the way God calls us, the life that God has called us to is, is seen throughout Scripture. And it's, and it's very far from um, the culture that we live in. It's very far from the ways that I see um, us living out our lives. I'm, I'm usually pretty uh, hopeful, pretty optimistic, um, but I don't know if we can get to the life that God describes in Scripture for us. Because this life that he, that he describes for us, he, he, he has this idea of enough for today. This idea of enough is very far from our um, American lives. Uh, this idea of enough, uh, just enough for the next step, just enough for today, uh, is very hard to get our minds around. Now, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if we can do it. Um, but this life that God shows us um, how to live is seen throughout Scripture. And God forces this kind of life. During the 40 years wandering in the desert, he only gives them enough provision for the day. Jesus reaffirms this kind of life in the, uh, in the Lord's Prayer when he says, Give us today our daily bread. Daily bread today. That's it. All right, so God is trying to teach us with laws, with parables, with love and examples that we're to live and give away for today, not save up for ourselves for tomorrow, that we can't control where provision will come from, when provision will come, and when guidance will come and how it will come. We can't control where and when attacks will come. All we can do is take the next step. Let's look at, uh, at Exodus 16. In Exodus uh, 16, verse 4, and I have to read it on the screen. <laughs> okay. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And this way I will test them to see whether they will obey my instructions. Now there's this command, this, this idea of just get, just get enough for today. I'm going to provide for you today. And tomorrow, I will provide for you tomorrow. And the next day, I will provide for you that day. Let's see what happens. Verse 19 and 20. Um, it says, Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it till morning. Moses is giving extra instructions. Just in case you didn't get that, don't keep any for tomorrow. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, uh, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, and Moses was angry. This stinks, guys. Way to go. <laughs> There's maggots everywhere, and it smells. Um, so this idea of enough for today and, and even if you try to hold on to it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rot and it's going to smell. Um, another, another way we can only uh, have enough for today is, is the issue of guidance. Numbers 19, 15 through 23, and I'm going to read through this, and it's very repetitive, but I want you to get that because when things are repeated in Scripture, it must be important. And, and maybe it's because we don't get it. You know, it needs to be said over and over. Um, on the day, the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony was set up. The cloud covered it from evening till morning. The cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, covered it at night. It looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they would encamp, and then at his command, they would set out. Sometimes the cloud only stayed for, from evening until morning, and when it lifted in the morning, they set out. Whether by day or night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. 
whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. At the Lord's command, they encamped. And, the, and at the Lord's command, they set out. Do you see this over and over? This is, okay, they obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. And so, so I'm, I'm sure the, um, the, the elderly men sat and watched this cloud and tried to figure it out. You know, like, like, we, like we interpret our weather. Oh, it's going to rain today. Oh, the cloud's going to move today. I, I, I don't know if they could, they could predict this, but the cloud is the only guidance that they got. And they didn't get a, okay, in a month, we're gonna, the cloud's going to move. There, there was no guarantee of when this cloud was going to move. It was just when it did, that's when you go. All right? I'm wondering um, where our cloud is these days. I'm wondering if, if it's moved on and we've stayed. I'm wondering if, if maybe uh, if, if we've left our cloud behind. Um, but, but this idea of enough for today. When the clouds move, you move. When God says go, you go. You don't, you don't wait. You're going to lose your cloud. Or if you, or if you leave your cloud, you, you might get lost. And so there's this idea of just enough for the next step. Just enough. The cloud's going to move, and you're going to go. The cloud's going to stay, and you're going to stay. You just have enough for that next step. Are you willing to take it, even though you don't have a guarantee of where it's going to lead you? There's, there's no five-year plan. Just that next step. God says, take this step. Go. Do you have the, the faith to take that step? Um, Okay, there's also this idea of um, you never know where the attacks are going to come from. You never know what the next day is going to bring. In Numbers um, 12, am I, am I, yes. Numbers 12, um, you, you have uh, Moses. This is, this is another um, account of, of the same story we're looking at. The, the Israelites wandering in the desert. Moses has led them out of Egypt. God has led them out of Egypt, and Moses is leading them. And, um, and Miriam and Aaron are Moses' partners in this, right? They're, they're, his, uh, they're the ones that are helping him do this. Aaron is the priest. Miriam, um, she's uh, his sister. You know, they're, they're the ones that are, that are going through um, this with him. But here, Miriam and Aaron begin to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Now, the issue seems to be that he, has, that he married this Cushite woman. But really... Um, the issue is much deeper. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now, when you're complaining and the Lord hears you, it's usually not a good sign. Um, now, the issue um, with, with Moses and these people closest to him, the people that are his partners in this ministry, this, this journey with God through the desert, um, the attack comes from those closest to him. We never know what relationships are going to blow up in our face. We never know where the attack will come from. And this is a scary thing uh, for a leader to face. Um, all of these names. Ready? Korah, son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Iliad, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses with them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They rise up against Moses. They, they came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? They're, they're jealous at Moses' position. God appointed him uh, this position, 
and, and the attack comes from within the community. And so you never know where the attacks are going to come from. You never know what relationship is going to blow up in your face. You never know uh, where provision is going to come from tomorrow. All you have is today. Now, um, after the 40 years of wandering in the desert, um, Moses, Moses is, the, the, the goal this entire time was to get to the promised land, right? Moses wanted to see this uh, goal uh, to fruition. In Deuteronomy 34, 1 through 5, the end of the Torah, the end of this whole journey, and Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, as far as the western sea, the Negev and the whole region and the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said, this is the land I've promised you. This is it. This is the promised land. Uh, I promised it on earth to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but will not let you cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. So this dream that Moses had this whole time, I'm going I'm to lead these people in the promised land. I'm going to I'm get to go there. God has promised me this. He's, he's told me how great it is. Nope, Moses, you're not, you're not going in. You're not going to make it. Uh, I'm not going to let you in. And so you never know what relationships are going to blow up, where attacks are going to come from, what dreams, what goals are going to crumble. Now there's this... Um, this myth I think we buy into, this, this lie of control. That if you do this, well, then people re will respond like this. You know what, I was gonna have a chart up here and I was gonna draw it. Okay, so imagine an, the XY graph. Remember high school math, XY? All right, so if, if you do this, you plot a point here. And if you do this, you plot, plot a point up and to the right a little bit, right? And, and if you do that, well, then people are gonna respond like this, up and to the right a little bit. And if you invest here wisely, up and to the right, that, and that's the direction of life, up and to the right. Um, but life doesn't always work like that, does it? You never know when the economy is going to take a dip. You never know uh, when your health is going to fail or will, when people will turn on you. Um, you have no guarantees. You have no guarantees of your, even your closest relationship. Marriages fail. I've seen it. Uh, you can live a healthy life, eat the right things, exercise all the time, but that doesn't guarantee that you're not going to sit in a doctor's office and hear the words cancer. You can, you, you can do A, B, and C, but it doesn't guarantee that life will turn out A, B, and C. We, have, we, 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 we buy into this myth. We, we even enforce it. We, we apply that myth to God that if, if I do this, this, and this, well, God, you'll do this, this, and this. So, so what is it? What, what are we trying to control? Is it people? Is there someone in your life that, that you have this, this divinely orchestrated plan for their life and they are not following it? Why can't they see what's best for them, right? Uh, wh what is it that we're trying to control? Is it that we need guarantees for our future? Do you have stress or anxi anxiety over what tomorrow is going to bring? I mean, I need a guarantee of what's going to happen next week, next year, right? I need God to reveal it to me. I, I need him to reveal the whole thing or I'm not moving, all right? But it gives you enough for the next step. Enough for today. It's so far from uh, um, here in America, right? Like, we have enough for plenty of days. Uh, we have refrigerators full of food that will get us through the month, 
Uh, we're in the top 95% of the wealthiest people uh, on this planet. And I, I don't want to preach that sermon. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to preach the sermon that says, hey, you're living like this, but really, God wants us to live like this just enough for today. But yeah, we still save up because I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we can do it. I don't know if, if I can do that, if I can just trust God enough to just have enough for today and give the rest away. And then when tomorrow gets here, trust God then too. Now let's look at... Um, Let's look at this life of Moses. Uh, we, we've looked at him a little bit already. Um, but let's look at his calling. In Exodus 3, versus, uh, Exodus 3, we find the calling of Moses. Let's look at 10 through 12 in Exodus 3. There we go. Okay, so, so God um, has heard the cry of the Israelites being enslaved by the Egyptians. Um, and when God hears the cry, that always puts things into motion. Uh, and so God says to Moses, I'm sending you. He's like, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people to the Israelites. And so Moses has this job offer. He's excited about it, right? He's like, yes, God's given me a job. No, he's not excited. And he has plenty of excuses as to why he shouldn't be excited. Let's read the rest of this point. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I have sent you. See, God says, I'll, I'll go with you on this journey. That's the guarantee that you get. And you, I, I don't guarantee that this journey isn't going to be hard, but it's not going to be rough, and it's going to be long. Um, this journey, the, the only guarantee I give you is that I will journey with you. And so he keeps on going with excuses. Exodus 4, 1, he's like, what if they don't believe me? You know, what, how, how am I going to get them to listen to me? Exodus 4.10, uh, he basically says, uh, I'm not a good speaker. He's, you know, I, I failed public speaking. You know, God, how are you going to use me? How am I going to speak? I'm not a good speaker. Exodus 4.13, he's going to come to the end of his rope. He's out of excuses. God, I don't care about their suffering in Egypt. Just send someone else. You know, he's, he, he doesn't want the job. Never wanted the job. Exodus 5.22. And now he, he's just begun this journey uh, on this job that he never wanted. And um, things aren't going his way. And he uh, talks to God like this. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Oh, do we have the next verse? Or can we do that? No. Uh, the, the, the pronouns here are this people, this, uh, these people. Why, why have you done this? Is this why you call me? These are your people. And, and Moses uses this kind of language just to say, this, you, know, you gave me these people, and they're your people, and I don't want any part of it. And, and, but later, uh, Moses um, has, a, has a change of heart. After traveling this journey, after, after uh, being with these people for for years in the desert, in Exodus 32, uh, we find we find almost the same type of dialogue, but it's God speaking this time. Uh, oh, there, there it is. Yeah. See, see, see the pronoun. Notice the pronouns. Ever since I went to Pharaoh, uh, you brought trouble on this people. You have not rescued your people at all. Uh, so he's blaming God. He's putting all the blame on God. God, this was your idea. How come you're not living up to your end of the bargain? That's how it goes. Uh, but then we come to Exodus 32. After traveling with these people, after uh, 
doing this job that God has called him to, uh, Moses' heart seems to change. Uh, so Moses went back to the Lord and said, uh, then the Lord, okay, now, now it's God speaking. Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. Now, it's as if God's saying, whose idea was this, Moses? Moses, this was your idea. This is a horrible idea. Uh, this is still God speaking. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed out to it, uh, sacrificed to it, and have said, these are your gods, O gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now, that same pronouns, this people. This was all your idea, Moses. This is God talking. His anger is burning against them. And then Moses' response uh, comes a little later. Then. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves, themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written, which is a euphemism for take me instead. So, so his, his attitude has gone from, I don't care about their suffering, send someone else, to I will suffer in their place. And so the question is, on this road that doesn't always go up and to the right, but has dips and bends and twists and turns, the question is, how are you being shaped when life doesn't go your way? How is God shaping you with all of these things that go wrong? Because you can't control everything, but what you can control is the kind of person you are becoming. Are you moving from indifference, I don't care about their suffering, to compassion, I will suffer in their place? Because we don't have a guarantee. We can't control everything. We have control over some things, but not everything. Exodus 13, 17. This, this verse kind of, uh, kind of grabbed me. I, um, I don't know if I have a favorite verse in the Bible, but this one um, kind of spoke to me. And um, it's interesting. It says, when, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. All right, yeah, it, it goes on to say, you know, they will face war and stuff. God didn't lead them down the easy, short road. He never promises that he's going to lead us down the easy, short road. Now, now, we can't control people's response. We can't control how the world is going to work uh, against us. Uh, all we can control is who we are becoming in response to the bends in the road. See, because God is on this journey with us, right? God um, it, it is there when life doesn't go your way. God did not lead them the easy, short way. There are no guarantees. All you get is that God will journey with you. Bad things happen to Christians just like they happen to non-Christians, and it's the same with good things, right? And I wonder if some of the things that, that we call blessings uh, because they reinforce our, our need for control, are actually an attack from the enemy to keep us, to keep us comfortable, to keep us trusting uh, in the wrong thing. Because we, we don't need faith when we have enough for tomorrow. And when we insist on holding on to control, then we don't need faith. Now, um, the, the sermon 
um, is kind of one of these things that I, I don't have much control over. I mean, I, I work hard at putting it together, and, and I, I shape it, and I craft it. It's like a piece of art to me. It's like my baby. And then I get up here, and, and I give it to you, right? And, um, and some of you, now, the sermon, it can be misunderstood, right? It, I, I could use a word that you have heard over and over again from somebody who has hurt you, and immediately, you don't want to hear it. You know, language, the language I use is very subjective and, and can be uh, misunderstood by some of you. And so, uh, so as hard as I work on this sermon, I can't be caught up in the results. I can't be caught up in the outcome. All I can do is offer it. All I can do is let God journey with me in this. And whatever the outcome is, when I let go of it, I let go of my baby. And, and, it, and it goes out into the world. And, and whether you understood it, whether you didn't. Um, whether the outcome was what I wanted it to be or whether it's not, all I can do, all, all, God, says, God, God says, here's the gift. All you can do is give it. Just give this gift freely with abandon, and, and I'll be on the journey with you. You can't be worried about the outcomes, the results, the evaluations. All I can do is journey with God and give the gift. I see, I see um, Jesus doing this with parables, right? The parables that, that he gives are, are very easily misunderstood or very easily, like, I have no idea what he's talking about, you know, to, the, to his audience. But, but he gives these parables that are hard to understand and they're open to multiple interpretations uh, and they're not that held down to normal rules of language and, and things, but he's okay with that. He's okay with, with people, either they get it or they don't. And then Jesus uh, when he leaves, when, when, he, when he left, when he ascended, uh, he left us with a mission. Right? He had faith in us. He let go of that control and he gave it to us. He had faith in us. Now, some of the most beautiful things in this world uh, might be considered a waste by the world. Right? They're, they're the actions that are done in faith and in love. And you know when you see it. You know when you see it at the store um, when, this, when, when somebody is taking care of somebody who is handicapped. Right? Or, or, or the, the, the woman who is taking care of her, um, her mother who has Alzheimer's. Uh, my grandma took care of um, her mom and her mother-in-law, and, um, and I watched as she was the caregiver. And, and Alzheimer's patients, uh, they can get mean um, to their caregiver, and it's not their fault. It's, it's a part of the disease. And, um, but but she, she just offered that in love and a sacrifice. And, and it wasn't for an outcome. Right? She, she wasn't going to get better. She wasn't going to get um, a result. She wasn't um, going to get uh, anything from this beautiful sacrifice. But that's what it was. It was a beautiful sacrifice. And I don't think if you asked her, she would call it a sacrifice. I think she would just call it love. And it's the husband who, uh, who didn't think much of the, uh, of the marriage battle and sickness and in health, but now he's walking through cancer with his wife, through the tests and the surgeries and the treatments, and he would take that cancer if he could, right? These are the things that are beautiful. And, and we invest in our kids, right? And, and we train them to make good decisions, but we don't have any guarantees that they're going to. In fact, we have a guarantee that they'll, they'll make some bad decisions. We all do. Right, but, but I, don't do, I, I don't take care of my kids because I want to control them. It's because I love them. Yeah. All right, so these results, these outcomes, these guarantees, evaluations, control. If we live our life for these things, we're living for the wrong thing. 
And if we live our life by that, by, by, by living about what things are supposed to accomplish, well, what happens when they don't accomplish those things? And you're left with this, what do I do with this? What do I do when life doesn't turn out the way it's supposed to? You know, maybe it's a relationship that you gave and gave and gave for years of your life and then it blew up in your face. All right, you gave years of your life to this person or this cause or this ministry or this business and then it turned around and it hurt you. But when we look at this with faith, these years that you gave to this, that was a sacrifice. That was a holy, sacred thing. And if God was on that journey with you, that's what makes it holy. Not the outcome, not the, the end result, but the journey. The journey has made you who you are. And if God is on that journey with you, you are becoming the kind of person God wants you to be. Right? The, the cost is an offering. It becomes sacred when you let go of control and you give it to the creator who knows what he's doing. As a minister, at some point, um, I got this idea that, um, that it's my job to get people from this point to some point that I make up in my head, right? Like if, if I could just get them to do this thing with their life. Uh, and so there's this dialogue, if only, then, but, but you guys don't cooperate. I don't, I don't understand <laughs> what the problem is, right? And, and, it's, and it, this is my desire for control. This is my desire to get the results, to get control. And, and it's like God saying, no, preacher boy, you're not gonna get the results. All you can do is give the gift. It's like this term um, that we use sometimes. It was a God thing, or you know, God, God just worked everything. You know, and we only use this when God works things out, right? When when the outcomes are like we wanted them to be, or the outcomes are good. Well, what happens when it doesn't go well? Was it not a God thing? Where was God in that? You know, when when the child made the wrong choice, when the doctor walks in the room and says cancer, well, what happens when the results are, are not good? See, God should be in the process, on the journey, the whole time, and in the outcome, good or bad, he's journeying with you. The sacrifice, that was a God thing, not just the good outcome or the bad outcome. So does God only get acknowledged when things go right, or is he there from the start, along the journey, the whole time? Matthew 26, 6 through 8. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man, and as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant and said, Why this waste? Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. So what we might see is waste. Jesus calls it beautiful. So, so what looks like a waste is actually sacred. What looks like a meaningless sacrifice becomes, because the outcome doesn't pay, it doesn't get the results, uh, it, it, it's not worth the effort. Jesus calls that beautiful. And do you want some guarantees? I'll give you some guarantees. I guarantee that it will not always go your way. I guarantee you that life it's going to have bends and twists and turns, and that it's going to knock you down, and you're going to be, sometime in your life, joining the infinite screen coursing through nature. Uh, I guarantee that we can't control everything. I guarantee that um, 
God will provide for today, and he will give guidance. I can't guarantee the way it's going to come. We, we want to control that sometimes. The, um, my hope for you today is that you hear your Savior, Savior speak your name. Can you stand with me? It was at the moment that Mary heard her rabbi speak her name. When, when, when that word came out of his mouth, Rabbi, she embraced him. So I think we all need to hear our Savior say our name today. What? Can, can you hear him? Can you hear him? Can you hear your name rolling off of his respond like Mary did with excitement, with joy throw your arms around your Savior exclaiming Rabbi it's not about what you're doing with your life, it's about who you love I love Jesus I want you all to join with me in loving Jesus so as we sing uh, you're invited to come, we do this every week, uh, at the end of a sermon uh, it's time for you to make some decisions, uh, what are you going to do in response to God's word being taught. You have to make a decision whether you come up or not. A decision must be made because God's word, God's word has been spoken. And so if you want to come and join our church, if you want to come for the first time and accept Jesus as your Savior, if you just need to repent or if you need prayer, whatever it is, I invite you to come. We'll talk. Uh, we'll figure things out together. We're on this journey with you, just like God is on this journey with us. Will you come as we sing? Thank mm -hmm. you.